Shall we bow our heads in prayer and uh, ask the Lord for his inspiration? Let us pray. Come, O Holy Spirit, and so inspire your words that he may speak directly into our hearts. Search our hearts and know us, our minds that we might think rightly, and our hearts that we might feel the heartbeat of our Lord Jesus. And may all that we say, do, and think honour our Father in heaven. This we ask and pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Uh, these past few weeks, we have been looking at David, the shepherd and king of Israel. Uh, he enters into Jerusalem in triumph, and you can imagine the crowd shouting something akin to, You are the man at his victories, uh, at his ascension to the throne. And last Sunday, I preached of how God, speaking through the prophet Nathan, would establish the house of David, uh, the chosen, anointed one of God, a man after God's own heart, uh, in an everlasting covenant. It's an awesome, staggering privilege and honor to be affirmed by God and told, You are the man, the one whose house will be established forever and through whose offspring God would establish his house and eternal dwelling. So far, he has done well. And so David is the man. Or is he? What a shock then for David when Nathan confronts David with his sin and also convicts him with the same words, You are the man, the man who has committed such a sin. What was the sin? And how did David respond to this accusation? Did he go from hero to zero because of this? Let me make it personal now. Has anyone confronted you before? Or have you had to confront someone with their sin or a problem that they have caused? How did it all go? You know, as God's people, as God's chosen people, uh, a royal priesthood, let us learn how God confronts and convicts David of his sin uh, through Nathan and what attitudes we need to take forward with us from observing them. So I'm going to make my first observation about God's nature with respect to sin and his people and to follow this with another two observations, uh, one from Nathan's perspective as the one who's doing the confrontation and the other from David's, uh, King David's, as the person who is being confronted. So observation one, uh, what can we observe or see about God and understand uh, about God? Uh, firstly, God will convict his people of their sin. And I'm taking this from Second uh, Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 to 6. God will convict his people of their sin. He will not suffer them to wallow in their own sins. Now, pigs wallow, but we're not pigs. We're not pigs to wallow in our own pool of mud and filth. So God will not have it, and he will confront us. So right at the start in verse 1, after a chapter of David doing all the sending to and fro, the Lord sent Nathan. In the mold of his predecessor, the prophet Samuel, uh, who confronts and holds, kings, uh, and holds King Saul accountable, Nathan confronts and holds King David accountable to God's command. 
as far as uh, God is concerned, in dealing with sin uh, within his chosen people, David's authority as king did not exempt him from obeying God's command. I say that again, David's authority as king did not exempt him from obeying God's command. By that I mean that it did not exempt uh, King David from being confronted with his sin, nor did it exempt Nathan, the prophet, from having to confront the most powerful person in Israel, the king. So it cuts both ways. I'd like to say here that position, power, and authority are irrelevant in God's scheme of confronting and convicting His people and His chosen shepherds of their sin. So if you are God's chosen people, and I believe that you are, even a shepherd after his own heart, be warned that God will confront you with the shameful things that you do in secret. Not just you, but me too. Even the things that we try to keep hidden. But God doesn't stop merely at confronting His people. He goes further. He goes further to convict them of their sin. Oh, you might be wondering, what's the difference? You know, con uh, confronting, convicting. Well, I may confront a person with a character flaw, but he or she may well respond that it is not true and prove me wrong. But to convict a person, however, is to prove, beyond a doubt, a person uh, guilty of a crime, resulting in a judgment and punishment for the crime. So conviction is, is a lot deeper and a lot more sure. Now, since we are not God, who alone, God alone, is judge over all men, uh, we can only confront and leave it to God uh, to God's Holy Spirit, uh, who will convict His people of their sin. Likewise, as God's uh, people and His under-shepherds, He may call you uh, to do a Nathan and send you to confront a person of power and authority uh, and opposition who could literally destroy your life. So this brings me to the second point from the perspective of Nathan, who is sent to confront David. So what do you do when God calls you to a confrontation? Now we note here that Nathan was called to speak truth to power. It's a popular term nowadays uh, where people rise up to speak to governments and against those in power. So Nathan was called to speak truth to power, those in authority, the king. How else could he obey God's call on him to walk in step with the Holy Spirit and to prophesy to his people, whether it be a king or a pauper, if he did not enter into this confrontation to hold David accountable to God? How else will you and I be salt of the earth and light of the world if we do not do his will when he bids us to follow him? to follow his lead, even as Jesus himself spoke uh, truth to power to the authorities during his time. So we too must be prepared to trust God and confront others uh, when what they do is evil and displeasing to God. 
For this reason, uh, during this period of time, Christians have been known to get involved in birthday rallies, you know, our uh, uh, electoral commission uh, cleaning out the, the, the voting rights. Uh, Suhakam rights and inquiries. Uh, we remember uh, Pastor Raymond Koh, Pastor Hilmi, and uh, Ruth Sitapu. Uh, prison deaths uh, and unlawful detention inquiries. Uh, unfair treatment of migrants and foreigners and many other uh, confrontations where people speak truth uh, to power. Now, uh, before you and I go off in a hurry to be confrontational, uh, let us learn what we can from Nathan's actions, uh, what Nathan does. Nathan takes a gentle and indirect approach to confront David with an ingeniously clever parable. Nathan's, Nathan's parable of the rich man's crime weaved in a story of abuse of power, greed, gross inequality, injustice, and meanness. The shocking cold-bloodedness of a man who owns so much, depriving a poor man of his one pet ewe lamb, incensed the shepherd in David. So much so that David burned with anger at the injustice and he pronounced that a man who did such a thing deserved to die and not only be sentenced to death, but should make compensation for foe. That outrage and sense of injustice in David remained and is all the more telling when Nathan, when Nathan rocks David with a, con a conviction, you are the man. Nathan confronts David directly by revealing the factual truth and reality uh, of what David had kept hidden. Even though it was the Ammonites that killed Uriah in war, it was in reality David who sent Uriah to be killed with the sword of the Ammonites. He killed the wife of the woman he was having an adulterous affair with. David then realizes that the story of greed, abuse of power, injustice, and sheer meanness is about himself. Nathan has confronted David with the disparity between the reality of David's sinful actions against David's own expectation of what is just and fair, as well as God's commands and his word. David has broken three of uh, the Ten Commandments in that he has coveted another woman, uh, another man's wife. He's coveted another man's wife. He commits adultery. And thirdly, he commits murder to cover up his mess. But Nathan doesn't focus on the content of the sin. You know, He doesn't really talk so much about the lust, the adultery and the murder. That was pretty evident uh, for itself and, and David knew it. But Nathan uh, instead focuses uh, and <coughs> Nathan instead highlights and confronts David's motivation motivation behind his actions, the reasons why he was doing it, and he points out that it was selfish, covetous, greedy, and downright evil, given that. David already had so much. All that Saul had was now belonging to David. He had so many things and he already had so many wives. Why take another one, someone else's wife?
And Nathan confronts David with the reality of how his, his actions had affected his relationship with God by saying, you are the man who despised the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes. So in confronting a person with their, sin, uh, with their sin, with gentleness and love, we learn from Nathan to uh, lay out the truth, to lay out the truth and reality of what happened and how uh, it falls short of God's word. So in other words, a, a factual representation of the reality of what happened. Secondly, to unveil the motives behind a person's actions. Why? Uh, one would do such a thing. And thirdly, to conclude how these actions have affected their relationship to God and to others. It's a focus on how it has impaired the relationship. Now, Nathan's master stroke of confrontation, though, uh, was his ability to demonstrate to David that while uh, while David was outraged at the injustice of what a rich man did to a poor man, that parable was being told, he did not apply the same standard of outrage to himself. And it revealed his hypocrisy and double standards. God has no partiality. He has no favorites. Uh, he treats all the same. And so David, even if he is king, is subject to God's laws too. There is no exemption for him. God had sent Nathan to David to confront and convict David with the knowledge that even as king, David was not exempted from obeying God's word and he was not above God's law. How many times we often view ourselves as being over and above the laws or even as we look in, in Malaysia, how often people in power and authority seem to think that they are above and exempted from the law. Now, I'd like to put it as gently as I can that God may call you to be like Nathan. We may be called to confront others of their sin and to speak truth to power. But it remains for God to convict or the person himself to be convicted of their sin if God speaks to them through the Holy Spirit. It is not for us to pass the judgment. And Nathan, in pronouncing judgment and punishment on David, is acting as God's prophet. He's speaking God's word of prophecy on David and his household. So I say again, we as human beings, we confront, but it is God who gives the conviction. We confront, but it is God who gives the conviction. How then does David deal with this confrontation and conviction of uh, the sin that he sought so hard to hide from others? As I said earlier, does he go from hero to zero? Uh, I'll go on to make my third observation from David's perspective now as the one that's being confronted. When confronted with the truth and reality of his sin, David chose to bear the consequences. Now, the brevity, the shortness of his reply, uh, David's reply, is stark in contrast to a, simile, a similar confrontation that his predecessor, King Saul, had with uh, the prophet Samuel, uh, where Saul chose to deny, to lie, to justify his actions, and to excuse his behavior 
David's reply to Nathan in verse 13 after being convicted by God is to say, I have sinned against the Lord. It's even shorter in Hebrew as it is represented by two words in Hebrew. Uh, Let me try saying this. uh, Hatati le Yahweh. Hatati le Yahweh. I've sinned against God. That two words. Now, Psalm 51, which is ascribed to David uh, and is said to have been written after Nathan's uh, confrontation with David about his sin, sees David acknowledging his sin and brokenness. Uh, in Hebrew, the meaning of sin is uh, to miss the mark or goal, hata, to fall short, to be wrong, or to offend God. So when confronted and convicted by God of your sins, uh, we need to confess uh, our brokenness, your brokenness, my brokenness before God. And like David, uh, your confession, uh, it must be repented and served without excuses. To repent is to turn one's heart back to God, away from our own selfish and evil desires that pull us down into death, violence, and darkness. To repent is not just words that say sorry and a putting on of a mask uh, to quickly get out of the uncomfortable confrontation and guilt or to quickly uh, get out of the way so that you can return back to your pleasures. No. As David hints at it in Psalm 51 verse 17, repentance breaks our willful, hard-hearted spirit and surrenders itself instead to God's will. Don't diminish or reduce your repentance by making excuses and averting the blame, or worse still, blaming others. If you are the man that God has chosen, then you are also the man who owns up to your sin and to be broken up by it. So David did not go from hero to zero, but he remained a man after God's own heart. And let me say that even if one has lost everything, everything but that, a man after God's own heart, one still has everything. David remained God's anointed one, uh, not because of his inherent goodness, but because God imputed and poured out His forgiveness and His Spirit into Him. Remember, we talked about God pouring out His Spirit on Pentecost. Keep that in mind as we go on. Now, David, as God's chosen anointed king, chose to bear the consequences of God's conviction of his sin. But even as he confessed his sin against the Lord, God's punishment was accompanied by pardon, uh, forgiveness. David had already said that the man who did such a thing ought to die and pay fourfold compensation. But Nathan replies in the same immediate uh, verse, in verse uh, verse 13, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now this gives truth to the scripture in Exodus chapter 34, uh, verse 6 and 7, that describes the nature of God as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now that's taken from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Remember, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So our God is a forgiving God, is a steadfast, slow to anger. So let me make this point. Sins are forgivable, but the consequences remain. Sins are forgivable, but the consequences remain. The child born to David and Bathsheba will die. And in the chapters to come, David's own household is torn apart against each other through rape, murder, treachery, and public displays of sexual immorality. The very same house that was intended to last forever would be shaken to its core by the consequences of David's sin. Uh, David's sin and iniquity would carry itself down the family line for a few generations. And rather than learning from David's repentance, three of his elder sons, uh, Amnon, uh, Absalom and Adonijah, and later on even Solomon, the fourth one, uh, would instead learn from David's abuse of power. So rather than learn from David's repentance, they learn from David's abuse of power and they try to forcefully take what was not given to them. David was forgiven, but the consequences of his iniquity continued to fall upon his family. Many also balk. I mean, they're revolted or upset at the thought of an innocent baby dying, whether it's uh, as punishment or as a consequence of the sins of their parents. It is ghastly, and rightly so. Sin is terrible and gives rise to heartbreaking outcomes. But I wonder also, though, if the child had lived, what manner of life would he have had with the stigma of his birth and the, the circumstances that, that gave rise to his birth? Now, aside from, from that, we trust that God would have morally sufficient reasons to allow for death, yes, even the death of an innocent baby or an innocent person, that God would have morally sufficient reason to allow for death, evil and suffering to coexist with His goodness in this world. Now, time doesn't allow me to elaborate further on this, uh, but if you'd like to explore this further, you might want to read about the problem of pain, evil and suffering from writers such as C.S. Lewis, William Lane Craig and Alvin Platinga, to, to name just a few, or maybe just have a conversation with me one day. Now, coming back to David's response to being convicted of his sin, he writes in Psalm 51, verses 16 to 17, You, and he's referring to God, You, Lord, do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. Now, if we are to learn from David, it is that when confronted with a sin, he repented, he confessed and bore the consequence and punishment for his sin and offered up his sacrifice to God, a broken spirit 
In other words, his surrendered will. No excuses, no blame game, no whiff of waffling, just an acceptance and his surrendered will, his broken heart. Our sacrifice is not an outward ritual, but a broken and contrite heart. I say again, our, our sacrifice is not outward ritual, but a broken and contrite heart. What do we mean by that? It is not in the pretense that all is well, pretending as we go about our religious duties, our ritual adherence uh, to an outward showing of these outward acts of piety and holiness. None of that. It is instead a humble heart that is attuned and in touch with God's correction. Now, it's not all doom and gloom. I also want us to be encouraged that God disciplines His children. That when God corrects us, that when He, uh, when He confronts us and convicts us and punishes us, that is His discipline. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 to 12, that, that entire chapter speaks that God disciplines His children. He says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. This is the writer of Hebrews telling to those readers, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, when He confronts you, when He disciplines you, when He punishes you, when He convicts you. I'm paraphrasing here, but I think you get the drift. Because the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and He chastens everyone He accepts as His son, a member of His family. So in the same way that our Father in heaven disciplines us, we too should be open to correction within our own family. I'd also humbly suggest that we be open to correction from each other in our leadership, in our committees, in our families, in our communities. I want to say this again. We should be open to correction within our immediate family. They're the ones that know us best. Because we are all children of our Father in heaven. My children, my son, uh, my son, my daughter, my wife, they are all equally children of God. I have no higher status uh, for them. In fact, I'll be the first to admit that I have been convicted of my sin and wrongdoing, or hard-heartedness at times, through the confrontations, the very courageous confrontations of my wife and, and my children, both together sometimes or individually as well as my good friends. It was humbling for me, as well as uh, uh, scary for them at times. But God spoke through them many times. If only I would listen. But you see, it's not them confronting me. It is essentially the work of the Holy Spirit in and through them that challenges and conflicts uh, and convicts and disciplines us as children of our Abba Father. And I know also that it is the power of the Holy Spirit within me hearing them as Spirit speaks to Spirit that convicts me of my hard-heartedness. In 1 John, uh, sorry, in John chapter 16 verses 8 to 11, Jesus had this to say about the Holy Spirit. And when He comes, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter, the advocate, the one who is like Jesus. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. 
concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This Sunday, we remember Pentecost when the Holy Spirit of God was poured out on the disciples. We acknowledge that the Holy Spirit continues to work in us. Let me remind you, therefore, that God continues to convict us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We sin when we do not believe in Jesus Christ, who is the living Word of God. We sin when, like David, we despise God's Word by doing what is evil in His eyes. Note the tight link between Jesus, the living Word, and Jesus, the Word of God, the written Word of God. Will you allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of righteousness and judgment, knowing that Christ is our only righteousness and has taken our judgment upon Himself? Let me summarize by saying this. God will not suffer His children, you and me, to continue to wallow in our sin. And when confronting sin, may you have the courage to speak truth to power with wisdom and love. And when being confronted with your sin, may you have the humility of heart to confess your brokenness and surrender your will to God. And all of this in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let us press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. Forgetting what lies behind, the sin that holds us behind, and straining forward to what is ahead, let us press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let me leave you with three application points to press forward on and a prayer to invite the Holy Spirit to abide in us. As usual, something to know, something to be, and something to do. Let me invite and challenge you to know that God disciplines His chosen people and convicts you through His Holy Spirit. Will you listen to the Holy Spirit as He searches your heart and brings to mind the, th the things that are displeasing to Him? And will you be, be a peacemaker, one who seeks out peace, uh, who is gentle, humble and contrite of heart, one who is a confessor, of sins. Finally, will you uh, do this by making peace to repent, to return, and to get right with God through reconciliation with Him? I'd like to offer you this moment, even as we pause, to think if God has spoken to you at this time and to make this transaction and this uh, prayer with God. It's Pentecost Sunday and we're called by Jesus to be daily filled and daily abiding in the Holy Spirit. So day by day, moment by moment, we invite the Holy Spirit uh, to come in. Will you uh, take this moment to open your heart to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And as we say this prayer, a prayer that is based on uh, Psalm 51, will you say it with me? It's going to be uh, uh, presented on screen. Will you say it as a, your own personal prayer if you wish to ask for God's forgiveness and to invite the Holy Spirit to abide and be with you?